KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, March 5th. We'll hear from a hospital on why it applied for the patient per nurse limit waiver. We'll have that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Forty percent of all COVID-19 vaccines in California will be reserved for residents living in the most vulnerable areas. Most of the zip codes identified by the state are in Los Angeles County and the Central Valley. But several zip codes in San Diego's South Bay will also benefit. Here's Supervisor Nora Vargas. The Latino community has been most impacted disproportionately by COVID-19, especially in the South Bay. And so if we're going to reach herd immunity, we have to make sure that we take these bolder steps. The state has agreed to relax restrictions on youth sports as part of a settlement in a case brought by a local attorney. The ruling in the case found that youth sports, both indoor and outdoor, could resume if teams maintained COVID-19 protocols similar to those of professional and collegiate teams. The San Diego Blood Bank is putting out an urgent call for donations, saying its supply is at critical levels. They say all blood types are needed. To donate, you need to be 17 or older and weigh at least 114 pounds and be in good health. You can schedule a donation appointment through the Blood Bank website or call 619-400-8251. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. COVID-19 hospitalizations skyrocketed in California around the holidays, and when staffing couldn't keep up, the state let hospitals put more patients on a nurse's workload than law usually allows. But a KPBS iNews source investigation found many hospitals that received permission to waive those workload restrictions submitted incomplete applications. In the second of a two-part series, KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento hears from hospitals that say they desperately needed the relief. It was around Halloween, and the outlook was frightening at Scripps Health. Senior Vice President of Human Resources Eric Cole said projections showed a surge of COVID-19 patients would arrive by the end of the year. That the number of patients we had today would grow five-fold um, over the next six to eight weeks. That meant its workforce needed to grow, too. A state law designed to support employee and patient safety mandates a certain ratio of nurses to patients. But Scripps struggled to find enough staff to meet required levels. They tried hiring. And those were in sl- uh, slim supply. They looked for travel nurses. Very slim supply since this was a nationwide pandemic and those resources were spread across the entire United States. And some core staff became sick as COVID-19 spread, making the situation even worse. Overnight, if the ICU creeps up five, six, um, uh, seven patients, 
I can't produce an RN overnight to fill the gap that I have to, to maintain those staffing ratios. Hospitals across the state face similar challenges during the pandemic, and the governor made it easier to stray from the staffing rules. Hospitals could receive a temporary waiver to expand a nurse's workload by one to two patients. Four Scripps facilities are among 200 California hospitals that received one since COVID-19 hit. Many applied during the winter surge. We had over 500 patients within our hospitals with COVID. That's five times more than what we had earlier in the year. The state health department declined an interview but said in an email, waivers should be a last resort. The waiver application says hospitals should exhaust alternatives before seeking one. But the state said in its email that facilities actually don't need to. And a KPBSI news source analysis of publicly posted waivers found dozens did not document they tried all listed alternatives before seeking the waiver. There are simply not enough nurses, not just in the state of California, not just in the United States, but not in the world. Carmela Coyle leads the California Hospital Association. She says staffing shortages occurred all over the country, but California has set nurse-to-patient ratios. And without a waiver, hospitals would have been forced to let patients wait in emergency rooms or ambulances. And if nurse staffing ratios are preventing us from caring for more patients in the intensive care unit, um, that's not uh, an answer that we can accept. But El Centro Regional Medical Center CEO Adolph Edward raised concerns some facilities took advantage of the waiver process. I was fortunate to have received the waiver, and I'm saddened that hospitals would ask for them without really using them. I don't think that that's appropriate either, because it wastes the time of CDPH in giving approvals for things that we shouldn't be asking for. Edward says the Imperial County Hospital applied after state-provided resources still were not enough. Their form noted they tried all alternatives listed. That includes setting up clinics for non-emergency cases, rescheduling elective procedures, and transferring patients. With the staff that we had, if we have not asked for a, a waiver, um, we would really be in trouble. Two Scripps facilities did not note they tried all alternatives prior to their first application, but Cole says they did later for an extension. He says they tried to stay within ratios at all costs, but proactively requested a waiver ahead of the spike its projections showed was coming. I think it'd be poor planning and it would be you know, harmful to our staff and our patients to not take advantage of a tool that's available um, and use it sparingly when it's absolutely needed. The governor just last month canceled the expedited waivers because hospitalizations have declined. The California Nurses Association cited the move as a victory. But at least 84 hospitals were still granted extensions until the state provided them with more staff. Scripps says it received three nurses, and their time should end later this month. But that could depend on patient volumes. That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. This story was co-reported by iNewsource investigative reporter Jill Castellano. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. San Diego County has not been spared from the nationwide spike in racist attacks against members of Asian and Pacific Islander communities during the pandemic. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser has the story. The alleged attack was cruel and brazen. A man punching an elderly Filipino woman on a San Diego trolley. 
The San Diego County District Attorney's Office says there wasn't enough evidence to file hate crime charges in that case, but it has filed charges in three other cases of hate crimes against Asian Americans. County prosecutors have also documented a number of other racist incidents. In addition, the San Francisco-based advocacy organization Stop AAPI Hate collected 29 reports of racist incidents in San Diego County against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders from March through December 2020. That's what's disturbing is we were not um, seeing that kind of hate crime directed towards our Asian community until COVID in 2020. District Attorney Summer Steffen set up a hotline last May where people could call or make online reports of hate crimes and racist incidents. She says they received 110 reports to the hotline and 10 were reports of incidents directed toward people of Asian descent. It's been actually horrific. Russell Jung is a professor in San Francisco State University's Asian American Studies Department who co-founded the Stop AAPI Hate Group. Attacks are pretty traumatizing because um, it's unexpected that adults would bully others, that they would use such racial slurs and epithets. His group has been doing what they call Chinatown strolls in San Francisco and Oakland, where people go visit businesses which are meant to create a sense of community safety. San Diego City Councilman Chris Kay did something similar in the convoy area at the start of the pandemic. Um, what we wanted to do was to, to showcase the APAC community and to, and to show support in that it was okay and it, you should continue to visit your favorite restaurants and businesses. Stefan says hate crimes must be pursued vigorously because they tear the fabric of communities in all corners of the county. It's so close to home. It affects a whole community. You know, my um, my husband, my kids are Asian American. And, and um, you know, every time we hear about an incident, it is, it's as if it happened to our own family. And that was KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. There's been a lot of talk about a so-called California exodus, a large number of people packing up and leaving the state. But as CAP Radio's Mike Haggerty tells us, a new study by the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley says it's just that, a lot of talk. The CPL study found the percentage of Californians moving is pretty much in line with historical norms over the last five years. Lead researcher Natalie Holmes says there's only one part of California where people are leaving at a higher than normal rate, San Francisco. But even there, the data does not support the narrative of a Cal exodus. With people moving from San Francisco, uh, almost 80 percent are remaining in, in the state of California and about two thirds are remaining in the Bay Area. If you look back over the past couple years, where people are going has also remained pretty stable. So for most San Franciscans who move, they're remaining in the Bay. Outside of the Bay, uh, the, the most common destination is L.A. County. The report also shows an increase in people moving from San Francisco to Sacramento and the Sierra. That was Cap Radio's Mike Haggerty. 
The city of Stockton piloted a program to guarantee some residents a basic income of $500 a month for two years. It was the first program of its kind, and now it's the subject of a 25-page study that shows it to be a success. Cap Radio's Rich Ibarra reports. Critics called it a handout that would cause people to spend it on luxuries or drugs and discourage them from looking for work. Former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs began the experiment without using a single cent from public funds, but rather private donors who wanted to see what would come of it. This idea that giving people $500 a month to make them stop working is a lie. I'm also incredibly moved by the health data. The fact that stress and anxiety will reduce significantly. Tomas Vargas, his wife and two children, were among the recipients, earning $31,000 a year but still hardly making it. The money allowed him to hire a tutor for his daughter, and yes, he worried less day-to-day. It's helped my stress level. Like I said, I get to relax more, I get to spend time with kids. That helps me and my health better. The study found that the key takeaways were better health, new job opportunities, and not being overcome by sudden expenses. Stockton was the perfect incubator for the study, with one out of four residents living in poverty, 18th in the nation for child poverty. Tubb says other cities have begun to follow in Stockton's footprints. Now there's over 40 mayors in this country, including seven in California, who are saying we need a guaranteed income. The study, headed by several university researchers, concluded that poverty results from a lack of cash, not character. And that was Cap Radio's Rich Ibarra reporting from Stockton. Coming up, International Women's Day is coming up on Monday, March 8th. We have a conversation about the wage gap here in San Diego of 18% between men and women and what could be done to change things. That's next after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. As we approach Women's Equal Pay Day, we want to look at where we are in terms of closing the gender pay gap. This year's Women's Pay Day is on March 24th, a day that symbolizes how many extra days into the new year, 83 days, that a woman has to work to make what a man did the previous year. For every dollar a man makes, women make just 83 cents. And that wage gap is even greater for most women of color across the country. Here in San Diego, a recent pay equity study of the city's workforce reveals women make about 18% less than men, and people of color earn about 21% less than whites of both genders. So, how do we close that pay gap? Heyo Kim is the executive director of the Kim Center for Social Balance. She spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman about the situation. So, does the pay gap among the city of San Diego's workforce mirror the gap across California, and and how does that stack up to the pay gap across the country? Well, that's a very good question, and it's actually a complicated answer because. There's so many factors that go into it that the pay gap is a multi-faceted thing. There are studies. There are multiple studies. So if the, if you look at a study that 
that says that um, they control for job title, you know, geographical location, etc. You might see that the pay gap is two cents on the dollar, which is, you know, still not acceptable. Any pay gap is a pay gap. But if you consider uh, certain reports that talk about the difference when you consider women who work part-time and part-year, lower-paying positions, uh, women of color, as you as you mentioned, the pay gap can be as big as you know sixty or fifty or sixty cents on the dollar. Wow! Uh, and talk about how much wider the pay gap is for women of color. It's pretty significant, and a lot of the reason is because of what kinds of positions women of color tend to hold. And when I say tend to hold, I don't mean to say that this is by choice. It is really important to understand that in a lot of cases, discrimination and bias, and it really doesn't matter whether it's unconscious bias or conscious bias because the impacts are the same. Uh, these are factors in, in, in the ability of women of color to access the pipeline. And that compounds the issue when you're actually uh, dealing with overt bias in terms of pay. There are situations where uh, women are not getting equal pay for equal work, which is a big benchmark. But if women of color are not being promoted by their supervisors, you know, sponsored by their supervisors uh, to decision makers in terms of getting into higher positions, are being discouraged from entering higher paying industries, then we have a problem that is is systemic um, and goes way beyond just the pay itself. You know, what recommendations would you make uh, to the city as it looks for strategies for narrowing that wage gap? One of the most important things is to understand the actual impact of bias and how it plays out. And the only real way you're gonna be able to figure that out is by talking to your employees. So when you talk about pay, you're talking about numbers, which tends to be two-dimensional data. They, They pulled up a lot of really important things like looking at the trends of parents compared to their earnings and I believe possibly their promotion levels. And that's that's a really telling data point. But then you really need to go to the qualitative side, which, by the way, can be quantified. Uh, we at the Kim Center do this. This is our assessment tool. Um, and it is really important to understand uh, what are the experiences of women of color, for example, when they're trying to get into the pipeline and move their way through the pipeline? Do they have the supervisorial support that they need? Do they feel that gender, all genders are treated equally uh, within their organization? Is there allyship from men? So one, one key comparison point that we look at is how do white men feel about the gendered environment compared to women, compared to women of color? The differences are very can be very significant when you're talking about Black women versus East Asian women versus Latinas versus Native American women. And you cannot apply the same solutions to everybody. For example, when you're talking about childcare, uh, there's very clear evidence that 
childcare support in the form of on-site daycare or childcare vouchers benefits women of color, Latinas, Black women in very different ways from white women who tend not to take advantage of those types of situations. So the there's a tendency to think that a one-size-fits-all women approach is kind of a, you know, one and done, let's let's just do this and we've done everything we can, but it's absolutely not true. So understanding women at the, the, different, uh, the different intersections of marginalization is very key. So in short, what type of cultural change needs to happen for women to get equal pay? In order to make the kind of systemic transformation that's necessary for all genders to achieve equal status, we really need to understand that value comes from every direction. And a diverse workforce is going to be the most flexible, the most productive, the most innovative um, workforce that you can have. Once we're able to unearth the discrimination that happens against women in every group, we'll be able to solve for other groups because women are simply the largest and most influential marginalized population in every group. That was Heyo Kim, the executive director of the Kim Center for Social Balance, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. The documentary The Truffle Hunters is on the shortlist for Oscar's Best Documentary. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando says it's a captivating tale of old men, their dogs, and their search for truffles. A darkened alley late at night. Two men negotiate a price for the small items in a brown paper bag. The buyer scoffs at the cost of 4,000 euros, but eventually succumbs. Such is the truffle trade in northern Italy, a secretive world that filmmakers Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw won entry to for their documentary, The Truffle Hunters. The film is both stunning and bittersweet and how it gracefully creates portraits of these men and their vanishing way of life. Shots are framed wide and without edits so that we can savor these delightful, passionate characters in their environment and often with their beloved dogs. This documentary is as rare and delicious as the white gold these men seek. And that was KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.